I would invite you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations." For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you now are ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God... The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for preserving it. I thank you that we can sit under it, and we had asked that your spirit, the author, would take the word, point us to Christ, to meet us at our point of need, whether it be your children or those who have yet to experience new birth, that they would see uh, their sin, they would see their misery, and they would see a glorious Savior. Father, would you grant them repentance and grant them faith, uh, that they would leave this place not as they come, not as they came, but changed, changed by the power of the gospel. And so, Father, we just commit ourselves to you. May you capture every heart. May you lay aside all distractions. uh, And may you find us teachable. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. So, We come to another section in Romans chapter 6. Another section beginning in verse 15. It carries through uh, to the end of the chapter. Uh, If you were to ask me what I think is one of the most important chapters in the New Testament for Christian living, I would without question say Romans chapter 6. It is pivotal in the book itself. We find justification by faith defined up to um, chapter 6. And then we find uh, how justification is to be lived. And so Romans 6 is extremely important in the Christian life. And as I mentioned, it unfolds, if you're outlining it, it unfolds in three separate sections. Uh, In verses 1 through 11, we understand our identity or our being in Adam or in Christ. And then from verse 12 through 14, uh, we are exhorted as those in Christ to make wise decisions. Decisions uh, about our bodies, decisions about the use of our members. And then from 15 to the end, we're going to find the issue of submission to authority. Submission to authority. Uh, We certainly know, and that Gene's wonderful pastoral prayer, we certainly know, looking around the world today, is that there is such resistance to rightful authority. Uh, There is such resistance to uh, submission to rightful authority. 
And it carries over not just in what's happening in the world and war, but in government as well as in the home and in the church. And Paul is going to bring us face to face with the issue of slavery, of slavery, which is really an issue of submission and submission to authority. Now, as I mentioned from uh, in the early chapters of Romans, uh, with Romans chapter 6 being the transitional chapter, Romans 3.20 through 5.21, the Christian life or the justified by faith life has been defined. Paul spends a lot of time using Abraham and going into uh, our identity in Adam and in Christ. And then in chapter 6, what unfolds is the practice of the justified life, the beginning of the practice that will carry through chapter 8 and verse 38. So we could actually look at chapter 6 as the introduction to doctrine known is to be doctrine lived. Doctrine known is to be doctrine lived. And the key in understanding this, and the key in in applying Romans 6, is to constantly remind yourself what the gospel has done. uh, What the gospel has done and its consequences in your life. If you are a believer today, the gospel has radically changed you. It has changed you from Romans 6 verse 11, which is the summary of verses 1 through 10. Paul says, in light of what I've just said about union in Christ, consider yourselves, ponder, account yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That is the work of the gospel. And then we have another summary statement in verse 14. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Again, another consequence of the gospel. And so as we emphasize the gospel, and we should every time we open up the book, we have to see that the gospel is not just a message that you believe, but it is a message that transforms. And it is transformation that gives evidence that you believe the gospel. It's not just a profession that I believe the gospel. It is a transformation from the inside out that the gospel has done and exclusively the gospel has done. And we come to uh, Romans 6, verse 15 and 16, and that's what we're going to cover today, verse 15 and 16, uh, primarily 16. And we find the Apostle Paul resorting back to the rhetorical question method that he did in the opening of the chapter. If you recall, go back and look at verses 1 through 3. He has these opponents that would try to say, well, in light of the fact that uh, we are justified by grace, uh, then let's just go on sinning so that grace may abound. And Paul would say, are you out of your mind? He said, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now go down to verse 15. He's going to come back with the same thing because he wants to now um, make sure that these people who said, well, let's just sin more so grace can, can abound. He's another argument they would come. They said, well, since we're not under the law, but under grace, so let's just go on and sin up a storm. And Paul once again says, are you out of your mind? Look at verse uh, 15 and 16. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And then he'll unfold this. And so it's important that we look at, look at this in, in what's happening. Is the words there by no means in the ESV? 
I gave you some kind of loose definition of what he said. But if you look at it, it means so much more. It means may it never be. God forbid. Absolutely not. Never. What a terrible thought. No, no, a thousand times no. That's one translation. And so what Paul is trying to, uh, to say, and he is saying with great emphasis, it's absolutely absurd. It is a question that is a moral and spiritual contradiction for the Christian to think that you can stay in sin so that you can amplify grace and that you can just continue on as if nothing ever happened to you. And then be assured at the end of life that you're going to go and be with the one who died and rose for you. And if anyone thinks that way, you're going to be very uncomfortable in heaven. Heaven is a place of happy holiness. And if that isn't the passion of the Christian in this life, to be happy due to holiness, then we're going to be quite uncomfortable in heaven. And Paul would say it's, it's illogical. You can't think this way. And he's going to bring up in, in the rest of chapter 6, verse 15 through 23, which I believe is one of the most important truths that we as Christians must believe and embrace. And it is the issue of slavery. It is the issue of submission to absolute authority. And it's the absolute authority for the Christian, which we'll see, that is in Christ. Now, as we work through uh, 15 through 23, and as I mentioned, we're just going to look at verse 16 today, is the noun slave appears eight times in nine verses. Eight times in nine verses. And this whole section is about mastery. It's about rule. It's about submission, as I, as I, as I uh, emphasized. And the reason why these rhetorical questions uh, were given by, uh, to Paul and why he forcefully goes back and just shreds those arguments is because if you allow for sin and grace to coincide, if you allow for an unholy not life uh, to live as if they think they're saved and go to heaven, then you've created, you've created three things. Number one, you have promoted cheap grace. You have promoted chief grace, or as Bonhoeffer would say in his book, uh, the, the Cost of Discipleship, it's grace without discipleship. And so if you can allow sin, well, I, I, I just sin. If you allow a non-warfare attitude every day in the Christian against sin, then you are promoting cheap grace, and there is no such thing as cheap grace. The second thing you promote, or the second thing that you will do if you allow these, these questions that, they, that, that are asked to exist, is you attack the very character of God. Is God is holy, holy, holy. You know, one of, in, in the new ABF that we're doing on, this, uh, on the fear of God, uh, Michael Reeves has distinguished, um, today he distinguished slavish fear. What is unhealthy fear of God? And then, Lord willing, next week he's going to talk about delightful fear. And where sin is allowed to coexist with, with God, what you've done is you've removed the chief element of godliness. Or as John Murray would say, the soul of godliness is the fear of God. You have removed the fear of God if you allow for cheap grace and you allow for sin to exist when God says, don't do it. I'm holy, holy, holy. And the third thing that if, these, if this is true... That grace can coincide with, with, with a sinful practice and a sinful life. 
then what you've done is you've lessened the gospel demands that Jesus places upon us. Self-control, self-discipline, and denial to follow Him. Well, Paul is going to talk about the, the antidote to this. And it's found not only in verses 1 through 11, our union with Christ in His death and His resurrection. And by the way, you must always think of your... I'll, I'll never grow weary of telling you this because it's so important. You must always look at yourself before God in your position and not your practice. You cannot look at your practice as a Christian and use that as a measuring rod to the health of your relationship with God. Now, it will determine the health of your fellowship, but it will not determine the health of your relationship. And there's a difference. Is your relationship does not change because, as Paul would say in verses 1 through 11, you have died with Christ, you have raised with Christ. That is something that happened once and for all. It's called justification. And I know a lot of good Christians that are just overly sensitive and that as a result, they're not enjoying the joy of the Lord because they're walking on these eggshells based on their conduct and not understanding that God sees you with the imputed righteousness of His Son that never changes. So if there's any value of what we get out of Romans, get this, is that God always sees, with you and, uh, sees you and deals with you out of your position in Christ. And that He'll never once punish the, ch- the child of God for sin. He will correct the child of God for sin. There is a difference. If you're a Christian, you think God punishes you, then what is what the problem with that is you fail to understand the depth of the gospel. Is the gospel is such that God punished sin on his son once and for all. And if you're in that and you died with him, then you are no longer under the punitive uh, sentence of God. You are under the corrective uh, care of a parent. It's a little bit off, but we're back because it's part of Romans 6. And I I want you to understand position before you understand practice. Because if you don't, you're not going to be a very, very contented Christian. But then back to verse 16. Paul is going to what I would say is the most, apart from understanding our position in Christ, which this position is amplified in verses 5 through 23. Because you can't say, well, I'm in Christ and not understand what the implications of that means. Because the implications of being in Christ is so radical in the way you live, and the way you view life, and the way that you interact with other people. And so Paul would start out by saying in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone, that's that's an important word, as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He is constantly used, he's such, he is such a brilliant mind. And his logic throughout Romans, which is his most logical uh, letter, his logic is such that he will use rhetorical questions. Uh, he will also use contrast, a lot of contrast in, in Romans. And here's another one. And the issue that he's bringing up here is first and foremost that every single person that ever has existed is under some form of slavery. Everyone is under some form of slavery. Look at it again. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, verse 17, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. So there is a transition. There is a contrast that unfolds here. And what you cannot 
for, for one second think is that, that we are free beings. There is no such thing as a free being in the human experience. We are under authority. We are under authority by virtue of creation and we are under authority by virtue of being either in Adam or in Christ. We are under authority. And this can be one of the most revolutionary truths that you understand. First, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and I'm not talking to you about your religion. I'm not talking about you being faithful to, to the thing, trying to do the faithful things of God. I'm talking about have you been born again? Have you been radically changed by the gospel to where your whole worldview changes and your whole life is now oriented from above, not below? I'm talking about that type of experience. You are under authority, even in that context. As a non-believer, you are in Adam, and as Paul would say, you are under sl- the slavery of sin and the slavery of death. And really what Paul's doing in verses 15 through 23, he's strengthening the argument about the two humanities. He's saying, if you're in Adam, then you are a slave to sin and death, as he would say in verse 16. And he would go on to say, but if you are indeed a slave to Christ, you've been free from that, and now it's a slavery unto righteousness. And we'll talk about that in the context of its being a freeing slavery. So verse 16, we have sin is personified. It is a master. It enslaves. And if you're not a Christian today, you are enslaved because, one, your own volition, but you are a slave because of Adam. You are in Adam, enslaved to sin and death, which he says in the beginning of verse 16. Now, as I mentioned, slave is is, uh, referenced eight times in nine verses. It's the word doulos. It appears 124 times in the New Testament. And it means a person who is owned by someone else. And their entire livelihood and purpose is determined by the owner. Doulos also was a word that was used for the under rower in the ships of that time. That was the lowliest uh, possible thing possible. But here's the difference. And some translations try to make this say that you were servants. Doulos is often translated, and that's not what it is. And I think part of it was because of the connotations of slavery in our country or just slavery in general. But we got to let the text speak for itself. And the word is slave, not servant. You say, well, what's the difference, Jim? Well, there's a big difference. Here's the difference. Servants are hired. Slaves are owned. You sign up for service. You're bought as a slave. And every human being is a doulos. As I mentioned, if you're not a Christian here today, you are a doulos or you are a slave to sin, Satan, and self. And if you're a Christian day, a Christian day, you've been freed from that. But you're not freed from slavery. But you're freed to, and we'll see this shortly, you're freed to the most liberating slavery that is possible, and that makes absolutely no sense to the world. Now, Paul, uh, in personifying sin here as a master and using the language of slavery, it would have been very familiar with his audience. 10 to 30% of the population were slaves. And so they would have understood. 
As Leon Morris says, Paul is reasoning from the well-known fact that a slave was completely at the disposal of his master. And no man could serve two masters. By definition, you belonged totally to one and had nothing to do with the other. Morris goes on, Paul is emphasizing the impossibility of compromise. For all of us, in the last resort, we are either a slave of sin or a slave to God. It cannot be both, end quote. And so as a Christian, we got to understand, you know, we are servants of the Lord. But if that's your only understanding of that, then you can carve out service for the Lord and call that what it is. And that's not what we are. I mean, if I see my only my life in Christ as not a slave to him, but is giving service to him as a servant, then I can say, you know what? I can give you an hour and a half on a wanna, but I can't do anymore. That's not what Paul was referring to. He's referring to slavery. And he says, if you're an Adam, and we need to talk about what it is in Adam and this slavery as a reminder. Because if you're a Christian, you need to constantly remember what the gospel has done to you. So that you will live with a grateful heart. And you will live with a thankful heart when you see what happened to you. And that without the gospel, you would still be a slave to self, Satan, and sin. Well, the first, what we see then from this as, as Paul would write here, that you are slaves, you are slaves of whom the whom you obey, either of sin. So we've established the fact that every human being is a slave. Outside of Jesus Christ, you are a slave to sin, um, as he would say, sin, which would include Satan and self. And what is the result of this slavery to sin, Satan and self? Spiritual bondage. Spiritual bondage. And outside of Jesus Christ, you may not know, you may not even feel the awareness of it, but you are in spiritual bondage. And that makes us subjects in the kingdom of darkness. We are subjects in the kingdom of darkness. Paul would say in Colossians 1.13, which is a summary of, of, of redemption that came before that, he would say that God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness or the kingdom of darkness. Or the authority of darkness. Or the power of darkness. All those are are adequate translations. And he would tell us that, listen, you were once in spiritual bondage in a kingdom of darkness that was oppressive. And you followed the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. And so no matter what we, what we try to do, and no matter what we uh, attempt by morality or whatever, the God of this world, who is the kingdom of darkness, he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that basically we are held captive in sin jail. We are in sin prison outside of Jesus Christ. There's no key. There's no hope of pardon. There's no hope of getting out by good behavior. You are forever, and if you don't come to Christ, eternally in sin jail and all the consequences as such. And thus the slavery of sin, the slavery of Satan, the slavery of ourselves. And Paul would say, to whom you obey, that is your master. And by birth, in Adam, all we obey is the kingdom of darkness. We have no capacity, no desire to even approach the kingdom of light. In fact, we repel the kingdom of light. And not only do we find ourselves subjects in the kingdom of darkness... But we are controlled by sinful passions. What is happening in our world today? 
unbridled sinful passions everywhere in the protest, in the LGBTQ movement, in the government. These are uncontrolled passions. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit, now get this, the kingdom of God. What's implied that these are the works of those in the kingdom of darkness. And Paul would say, that's who your master is. In Adam, that's who you are controlled by. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he would tell us, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires, the body, and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. Now, if you recall last week, Paul tells us in, in verses 12 through 14, not to present our members or our body as instruments of sin. He is telling us in 12 and 14, by virtue of our union in Christ, we have the power to choose. He says, let not sin reign in your body. Do not let your members, your eyes, your hands, whatever, to to go and be instruments of sin. Then in Ephesians, Paul would say, you are carrying out the desires of the body. That would be the use of your members. And he says, that's all you can do because you are dead in the kingdom of darkness. You say, well, I know that. This is what I've been delivered from. I want to emphasize that because I need to constantly remember where I came from. And you need to constantly remember where you came from. Because you're not going to have empathy and you're not going to have a passion for the lost until you remember that you were one of them. And that Paul was burdened for his people. Later on we're going to read that he wished he was accursed. That the Jews were saved. He, he was saying, I wish I was accursed. And he, he would say that is because he knew that he was in sin jail at one time too. That he was imprisoned by the prince of darkness. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. It's clear though. And Paul would say this. In verse 6. Well, verse 16. He says. To anyone as obedient slaves. You slaves. To the one whom you obey. See that's the key. That's how you'll know. That's how you'll know which kingdom you're in. It'll, it'll be by your conduct. Now, that isn't your conduct to get you into the kingdom. It's your conduct because you've been transferred into the new kingdom. And so you can look at your own life. Because he would say, you obey. Whoever you obey, that is whose kingdom you're in. That's who is your master. And if you're constantly obeying the sins of the flesh, you're constantly obeying the corruptness of your mind outside of Christ, if you're constantly obeying, then I don't care what you think you are, the Bible says this is what you are. And the Bible says that you are held captive by Satan, blinded by the God of this world, and that the mastery of your life is sin. I, I don't want you to think that, you, that you're neutral in this. Christopher Ash, I've come to love his books. He says, in this, using the World War II analogy, there is no spiritual Switzerland. 
There is no neutrality. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not that. I'm, I'm, that. I'm not driven by my passions. And say, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm in Christ. So I'm kind of in the middle. Now, part of the thing that Michael Rees talked this morning, he, he, he talked about uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens. The, he wasn't an atheist. He was an anti-theist. There's a difference. It's, it's Kitchen was on to say that, uh, that he didn't want to believe in a God. He didn't like a God because it would be like living under the oppression of a tyrant 24-7 and living in North Korea. So he had a false understanding of who God was. But what was revealed was he had a fear. But it was a, a, a slavish fear. So don't think that you're neutral in this. Every one of you under the sound of my voice, and even the one with the voice. <laughs> By the way, I am grateful for a voice. And so here's the point. Is you are a slave of someone. By virtue of creation and by virtue of being in Adam, you are a slave to sin. You cannot get free from that. You have no ability whatsoever. You have no ability whatsoever to let yourself out of that. If you're in Christ, you're also a slave. But you're going to find out here in a minute the glorious nature of that slavery. It's a slavery that we welcome. It's a slavery that we embrace. I love how Spurgeon defined this, uh, this slavery to sin. As only he could, master of word pictures and, and illustrations. Spurgeon says, quote, Nothing but the new life, that is the gospel, applied, can secure a man from the worst fiends in the pandemonium of vice. For they gather like a scattered pack to a feast. When they hear their master cry, dead sinner, dead sinner. Where, where the pack cries. And the master says, here, here, here. And they pounce upon the carcass. That's what slavery to Satan is. Sounds like the screw tape letters in some ways. The slavery of spiritual bondage cannot be broken, as I said, by man. It can only be broken by the gospel. And when you understand that you are in bondage, spiritual bondage that you cannot get out of, you know what the gospel is? That is the greatest news you'll ever hear. It is the greatest news you'll ever hear. And if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've lost the all factor of the gospel, ask God to grant you repentance and restore the all factor of the gospel. Because as I mentioned, we need that constantly. Or you're not going to be white hot with zeal for the lost in your prayer life as well as in sharing the gospel. And you're going to find yourself just basically just in this Christian cocoon. And you're not going to have a burden for them. It's just us. Them, us. It never is that. It's us. And we've been pulled out of the fire to go back to us. And so that's really the essence of the mission. But unless you're able to see, as Paul writes, the slavery of, of unsaved family members, of friends and neighbors, and when you see the absolute foolishness of governments, when you see the folly in our highest offices, when you see all that, I hope that you're praying for their salvation. Because we're living in a temporal world. And it's going to end sometime. And we're here for the eternal world. 
And until we understand and see that neighbor that is absolutely belligerent and hard to get along with as enslaved to sin and Satan, we're never going to have the burden to get the gospel to them. The Lord appears in the synagogue in Nazareth, and the attendant gives him the scroll. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That is those in the kingdom of darkness. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord that he may be glorified. Can you imagine sitting there and hearing him who is the gospel and you're feeling the weight like Christian did in Pilgrim's Progress. You're feeling this burden and you know that you are in spiritual jail, in sin jail, and you're in darkness. You've been awakened to that and you got no hope whatsoever. You just are, doing, are despairing to the point of, 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 of hopelessness black hopelessness, and then all of a sudden you hear, and I come to set the captives free. That's the gospel. And I want my heart inflamed with it. I don't want the trivial, and I don't want the temporal to so rob me from the all of the gospel that I see my neighbors, I see her, I see Kristen, I see Tim, and I see Christine, and I see Vern, and I see, I see all my neighbors, and I see them as they are. They're going through life, and they don't even know they're in the shackles of the evil one. And Lord, when we see, and, and when the Lord shows us what Paul is saying to the Romans... Listen, you're either a slave to Satan or you're a slave to Christ. There is no choice. Then the playing ground becomes pretty clear and simple for us. During the time when the slave trade was still practiced in, down in the south, there was a handsome young slave who was for sale. The bids kept rising very high. Finally, an Englishman purchased the boy. The young slave began to chide him and said, Englishman, you buy me a slave when slavery has already been abolished in your country. It no longer exists in England. The Englishman, the purchaser, looked at him and says, Son, I bought you to set you free. The young slave, overcome with emotion, replied, I'll be your willing slave forever. You know what that illustration is? The gospel. The gospel. And so by, by being an Adam, which is chapter 5 and in the part of 6, by being an Adam, Paul would amplify and show what that truly is. And what that is, being an Adam, you are obedient to what Adam produced. And nothing but sin and bondage. But, and here comes the good part. Look at the, uh, look at the contrast in verse 16. By virtue of new birth in Christ, a new master has arrived a new master in our life. And notice he says, you are slaves of whom you obey. Because you're an Adam, you obey nothing but sin, Satan, and self, uh, which leads to death. Or, and here's the contrast, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, remember, he is not teaching morality. He's already established what righteousness is, and we'll look at that briefly. But what he's clearly showing 
is that there is a radical shift of authority in our lives when we come to Christ. Is that everything changes. That's why it's called new birth. And I'm not saying you're perfect. By no means. You don't all of a sudden get born again and, and voila, everything is great. It's just the opposite. But there is transformation. And then becomes the wonderful work. And the wonderful privilege to be a slave of Jesus Christ. I want to talk briefly about this righteousness that he mentions. I want us to look at the, at the dual definition and then the application for us. This is important. Paul would say that we, uh, we are either slaves to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, and that death is eternal death. Or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. What, what is this righteousness he's talking about? Well, there's two, two, uh, two definitions of this, and I want to couch it in, in, in the being of God. The first thing is righteousness is who God is. He is righteous. And that means that God's perfect and absolute justice and his perfect and pure holiness is executed in an unwavering standard of his law. He is right. And thus, because he executes perfect justice into perfect holiness, according to his perfect law, it is a righteousness that marks him and his character. But then righteousness is also what God does. He executes justice. Psalm 99.4, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness. But in the midst of him executing uh, righteousness, what he does, he also gives righteousness to us. And here's the application of this. That's one of those big theological terms. And make sure that you understand it, not just in the, in the context of God's character, but how it applies to you personally. And here's two ways. Number one, it is personal and it is relational. It is a theological term that has life. And by the way, all theology is to produce life. Not mere knowledge, life. And so when you see in Romans 3, I'll read it to you, but now the righteousness of God, His perfect standard, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So now you have in verses 3, 21 through 22, which is pivotal uh, verses in Romans, we have the declaration of God's righteousness it's transcendent, it's apart from us, but then we had the eminence of righteousness. It comes to us, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you see the righteousness of God given to you in a relational context in a person? I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him... God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. That is the theme of Romans 6. In Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. Who became to us. Who became to us? Christ. By the Father. And notice what we have here. These, these are the spiritual blessings, some of them, of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. That God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Notice the three he gives us, or four I should say. Wisdom. Righteousness sanctification, and redemption. Is that not everything that we need for now and eternity? Do we need anything else? 
We need wisdom from God. We got it in Christ. as to live out the knowledge of God. Sanctification, we have that. We have the Spirit of God conforming us into the image of Christ on a day-to-day basis. That's sanctification. We have redemption. What is that? Ownership. Slavery. And then the one I skipped was righteousness. Every one of these spiritual blessings in 130, they're relational. You say, well, how is righteousness uh, relational? Well, if God, as God gives you His righteousness in His Son, who takes up residency in you? Your righteousness. Remember what John Bunyan said about his righteousness? And if I don't get this right, please talk to Gene afterwards. The, he's the John Bunyan expert. But here's Bunyan, Bunyan says, my righteousness is in heaven. And he's pointing to the person of the Lord Jesus. And the reason why it's so important that you, you think of righteousness, being a slave to righteousness, because if you don't see it as a slave to the righteous person in you, you can reduce down this slavery to simply some do's and don'ts and mere function in your Christian life. And you'll have all the outward lookings of a righteous person. And you will lack the inward reality of Jesus Christ, your righteousness. And that will be evidence by the lack of development of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Here's another thing about this righteousness that's relational that you've got to constantly remember. Is that when you forget the presence of God in your life, you have opened up all venues of temptation to come rushing at you uh, like a flood, like a tsunami. And if you forget the presence of God, you will sin. You will sin. Your restraint in the strength of yourself can only last so long. Bonhoeffer, uh, in his book Temptation, he was writing about the sin of lust. We may apply it to any sin. He said this, and this is really important. I don't agree with everything about Bonhoeffer, but this was so good. Quote, at the moment of temptation, God loses all reality. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God in temptation, but forgetfulness of God, end quote. Think about times you've been tempted. Is that not true? Does not the fiery darts of, attempt, uh, of temptation come to you? What is the first thing that you lose? You lose a sense of his presence if you don't cultivate that. You get so enamored with the pleasure of the temptation or the, or the strength of the temptation, you forget God. And then when that strength, when that defense is gone, what's left? It's like, uh, it's like, it, it's like, um, in Bunyan's second allegory. You should read it too. It doesn't get much press. The Holy War. And so Bunyan, Bunyan writes about Mansoul. It's a battle for Mansoul. And so Diabolus, the, the devil, is coming to capture man's, man, Mansoul. And so the first person killed in the assault on Mansoul was Captain Resistance. Captain Resistance. Because when resistance is gone, then there's no fight. And so in temptation, if you don't remember the relational application of Christ in you, the hope of glory and his righteousness that says temptation to sin, we can almost go like, Paul, are you out of your mind? How, how, I, how can I do this? How can I commit this sin? Are you kidding me? I'm a slave to righteousness. I'm not a slave to you anymore. I'm out of your jail. And that's how you fight that. Another thing about this application of God's righteousness, not only is it, is it relational, as captain of our soul is the Lord Jesus, it's also very practical. 
is righteousness produces righteous living. And Paul would say, who you obey reveals what kingdom you're in. I'm not dismissing obedience at all. In fact, is because you're a slave to Christ, your obedience is going to be a delight. And you're going to want to obey. And you're going to obey. It's going to incrementally progress. But if you recall, we looked at this slavery to sin, Satan, and self. As Paul says, whoever you obey, that's your, that's your, uh, your master. And we looked at, in Adam, we have no choice but to be mastered by sin, Satan, and self. I want us to do the same thing looking at the slavery of Christ, or this obedience which leads to righteousness in verse 16. Spiritual bondage, the contrast, is spiritual freedom. In Christ, we have spiritual freedom. In Adam, and the slavery of sin, self, and Satan, we are in the subjects, subject in the kingdom of darkness. But in Christ, obedient unto righteousness, we are subject in the kingdom of light. Same Colossian passage. God says he has delivered us from the domain or kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now what does it mean to be in the kingdom of Jesus? Well one thing it certainly means is submission to his authority. And that means submission of his authority will not even allow us to entertain what these arguments are against Paul. Well let's sit in some more so grace abound. Well, how how can you? Because King Jesus is the ruler and you are not just his servant, you're his slave. And as a slave, it's the master's will, not your will that is to be obeyed. So get that thought out of your mind. But here's the beauty of being a subject in the kingdom of light. It's a spiritual freedom of love. It's a spiritual freedom of love. The born again person, you know what happens? I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. We'll get to Romans 7. We will. And it'll be encouraging. Paul says, I don't want to, but I do. And we'll talk about the spiritual war that we fight and some battles that we fail. That's why before you get to Romans 7, you've got to make sure you have Romans 6 mastered because Romans 6 is about position. Romans 7 is about experience. And so then we see then in, um, uh, in the subject as kingdom of, uh, of light, we had this wonderful, wonderful uh, picture that Christ has captured us. Did not Paul say about the Damascus Road experience, I've been apprehended. He says, I've been arrested. I love what Samuel Rutherford said. Quote, since he, Christ, looked upon me, my heart is not my own. He has run away to heaven with it. End quote. Friends, if you're a Christian today, the spiritual freedom in Christ as his slave is one of delight. It's one of delight. It's one of love and that you welcome and you'll find in your Christian life that you, just, you don't feel this a burden I have to obey. No, 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 no. You feel the burden I want to obey. I long to obey. And a sign that you're in the kingdom of light and darkness is increasing intentional obedience to known commands. I don't want to, I'm not going to harp on that a long time, but be very careful that you just don't do life without doing life. Be careful you just don't drift through life. There are specific commands that mark the Christian. Love one another. Encourage one another. 
carry the burdens of one another. On and on and on. There's over 50 one another commands for the family of God. And if I was more concerned about obeying the one another commands out of love for my master, I wouldn't be so wrapped up on me, me, me. And the same thing applies for all of you. You have your own things going on in your world. And if your first thought is a Christian, what is about me? You got it all wrong. It's not, it's not about us. Pastor Jonathan preached the message. Jesus says, if anyone who will come after me, let him what? Let him accommodate himself. That isn't what he preached. He's a good preacher, and he preached, you must deny yourself. And so when you're in something, and you're making decisions, and you're looking at how to, uh, your life and stuff, is the first thought the interest of Christ and the interest of others, or is it your interest and then his? Friends, that's flipped. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And slaves don't, are not allowed to put themselves first. Slaves are under the mastery of the greatest master ever. And here's the vital point, and we'll close with this is that as a slave of, of sin and a slave of Adam, you're in spiritual bondage. You're in the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of darkness, and you're under the control of fleshly sinful passions. But as a, as a servant, not a servant, as a slave of Christ, you're in a new kingdom, and it's a kingdom of spiritual freedom, not bondage. And in that bondage... You are a subject of the greatest king ever who cares for you, provides for you, walks with you, encourages you, and it's not a burden. John says in 1 John, his commandments are not a burden. And if you're finding that his commandments are a burden, then something's wrong. There's a delight in obeying this king, this glorious king. But as the kingdom of darkness inhabitants were slave to controls, and controlled by the passions of the flesh, we're controlled by something else. As slaves of Jesus, we're controlled by His Spirit. And we'll talk more about that when we get to Romans 8. 2026. No, no, no. I, I didn't mean to say that. It was in my notes, though. No. Uh, to be controlled by the Spirit of God, what does that look like? There's a lot of stuff out there that, that claims to be of the Spirit of God, which is not. We could spend hours just dissecting all the falsehoods that are out there. But here's one evident that we are living controlled by the Spirit of God. It is the steady development, not without falling, but the steady development of the character of Jesus. Let's imagine that um, I spent the next week in your house and you did not know I was there. And I'm watching you 24-7. And you profess to be a Christian. You profess to walk with Christ. Um, you profess these. You actually may even do ministry. But now I'm that little tiny fly on the wall that you can't see. And I'm watching you for the next seven days. At the end of that seven days, am I going to walk out? And am I going to be so encouraged because I saw Jesus in your home? I saw Jesus in your marriage. I saw Jesus in your parenting. I saw Jesus in the use of your discretionary time. I saw Jesus in how you manage your finances. I saw Jesus in everything that you did and your attitudes. I saw Jesus with your neighbors. I saw Jesus, and I walked away thinking, that is the real deal. 
Would I walk away from the, your home thinking love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Or would I walk away and think, I don't see Master Jesus. I see servants of Jesus, but I don't see slaves of Jesus. And so you won't get mad at me. You can do the same thing with me. You can spend, you can spend next week in my house. And you can watch me, how I use my time, how I spend my money, or how I use my money, uh, how I handle my relationship with my wife, my dad, um, uh, my dog. How do I do all that? I mean, so, and, and you walked away, would you be able to say, Jim, he's the real deal? Or would you walk away thinking, I, that's not what I see outside. Friends, we're slaves. We're slaves. Paul would say, you're... Whoever you obey, that is your master. If it's sin, then you're under the slavery of, G, uh, of, of Satan, sin, and self. If it's the Lord Jesus, then you are under the mastery of obedience to him, which leads to righteousness. Pastor Ray Stedman, he shared the story of a man walking down the street in L.A. There was a sign hanging on the man. It read, I am a slave of Christ on the front. After the man passed by... On the back was the sign. On the back was the sign. These words. Whose slave are you? It's a fitting way to end. Because every one of you, including myself, have to answer the question right now. Whose slave are you? I didn't say whose servant you are. As Paul would say, whose slave are you? It'll be revealed by your conduct. Who you obey. Your passions. The world. Or the Lord Jesus and his commands. May God help us to be slaves and enjoy the spiritual freedom that Christ provides for us. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much for setting us free from the, the eternal jailhouse of sin, Satan, and self. And I pray that there's someone here that's been awakened to see that they are in that position and they can't get out. May they grab the gospel. May they run. May they even ask for some help if they need it. And Lord, for your people, may we be shaken to see that we're not your servants alone, that we are your children, enslaved to the good mastery of Jesus. And may that reflect on our conduct in our homes, as well as in our church, and in the world at large. Because in a world that is anti-authority, to see Christians who are submitted to the authority of Christ will make the difference. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.